is preaching this morning, so let's give it up for Kelly. We, we need some walk-up music. No, no walk-up music. Sweet Home Alabama, that would be my walk-up music. I hope y'all had a great Thanksgiving. We had all the boys at home, which felt like God's goodness to me, and so I spent most of the time in the kitchen, but that's my happy place. Four boys to feed, it's a lot. My name is Kelly, like Todd said, and I'm on staff here along with my sweet husband, Billy. He's the better half. So Jonathan has given me the privilege to usher in the season of Advent here at Skyline. During Advent, we join with Christians all over the world to celebrate the coming of Jesus. And every week has a theme. It's hope, um, what's the other one? Preparation, joy, and love. And so this week is hope. And I love talking about hope. Because I think that hope is a tender emotion. I only feel hope when I take the risk to believe that something can change. We hold it gently. Because it comes and goes so surprisingly. It can be really fragile. And yet, when we're sure of hope, when we think that this insurmountable problem that we have has the possibility of changing, it's strong. It's a force to be reckoned with. It can make a defeated soldier get up and fight again. It can help a mom whose child is crying, a single mom who's working really hard, get up even though she's tired and go back to work to make a better future for her kids. Hope is strong and yet fragile. Tennessee Williams, who was a great um, observer of people, said, sometimes the most fragile folks, they end up being the strongest. And that's what hope is. It's fragile and yet strong. So Jesus came to bring us hope, and he entered the world as a baby. It didn't have to be that way. God could have just shown up without all the humiliation of being in diapers. Because can you imagine God being in diapers? But he was. So I love what Oswald Chambers says, who's my hero. Beware of posing as a proud person. Remember that God became a baby. And he came that way to fulfill Old Testament promises, like the one in Isaiah 7:14. The angel quoted this to Joseph before Jesus was born. He said this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And all of a sudden, the scandal of a pregnant fiancé takes on a hopeful twist. God is in this. This baby is his. It changes everything. And then Jesus grows to be a man, and he starts to teach us about God the Father. And I've shared this with some of you before, but this is my theory. Why did Jesus wait 30 years to start his ministry? He could have gone out when he was like 10, but he didn't. And I just think, well, I know that Jesus knew the minute that he started his public ministry, he was bound for the cross. And it wasn't going to take long before they took him out. And so... I just can picture him saying to the Father, Father, give me another year, just one more year with these people because I love them. He loves us so much. He wanted to be with us here as long as he could before he came to live in us through the Holy Spirit. So when he comes, he turns the religious system upside down and starts handing out hope to all the most unlikely people. And then after being tempted in the wilderness and passing that test, triumphant son of man strides back into his dusty hometown to announce to everyone why he came. 
And that Sabbath day, he reads to them the hopeful promise of Isaiah 61. And okay, I'm going to be super old school, but if you'll either grab the Bible in the pew in front of you or pull out your phone and turn with me to Isaiah, oh, no, no, sorry, not Isaiah 61, to Luke 4.18. And let's read it together. So this is what Jesus stands up in the synagogue and reads This is why he came. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty for the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He closed the book, sat down, and all the eyes were upon him, and he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And from then on, he became those promises for us. The world's never been the same. And he offered, the humani- he offered us, humanity, the joy of knowing, finally, real freedom. So I put this verse to prayer, and I would just love to pray it for all of us. So if you'll just pray along with me. Jesus, I'm weary of living in the poverty of my mistaken identity, which for me is that I am the way that I perform. And I know that's not true. So thank you for the good news that you, that with you I'm enough because you've freed and forgiven me. I can be so captive to the lie that you're disappointed in me. Jesus, will you liberate me with the truth that you're working everything out and that my mistakes don't keep me from your freedom? Sometimes, God, I'm blind to your goodness, the way you see me and others around me. Will you recover my sight so that I see myself and the world through your eyes? And I so often let myself be oppressed by a religious system that tells me that I have to keep it all together to be pleasing to you. Free me, Jesus, to give you my brokenness, to lavish love on all the other broken people around me because that's certainly what you did. And you guys, this is why he was born, to take our bondage to the lies of this world and to free us from them, to proclaim that God's favor has come and that he's restoring our relationship with him because God loves us. He came to give us heaven, for sure, but he came to give us hope here and now and to make our stories a compelling vision of what he has for us. And so speaking of stories, I'd like to invite my friend Millie to come up and tell us her story. (laughs) No, girl. You want to come up, Kenzie? No, no. Thank you, Millie, so much for telling us your story. So brave. You know, if you told me to get up here and talk about Jesus all day long, I could do that, no problem at all. That's my favorite thing to do. Um, And when Kelly asked me to share my story... I'm all about it one-on-one, and, um, but I started thinking, and I was like, man, this is hard, and then I started thinking about the people that have so openly and courageously shared their stories in this congregation, like Perry and Patricia, and those people that just break your heart, the goodness of God that shows and shines on their life, and, um, so they, they, I'm borrowing some of their courage today. <laughs> and uh, I also want to um, really give honor to my two oldest girls. 
we were here today because they lived the story with me. So there's, my story is their story, and it continues to be their story. And so I want to thank them for having the courage to be here to support me today, too. And so, um, yeah, hang on to your hats. It's a little odd, <laughs> but uh, my prayer is that you see the goodness and the love of Jesus throughout my whole story. So I was born and raised one of seven kids. I was the middle kid, and I was actually fourth generation born into a cult. And so I was raised um, extremely legalistic. Uh, we weren't allowed to seek medical attention or go to medical or go to any kind of hospital or doctors. So, um, yeah, so we, I witnessed a lot of death, unnecessarily death. Um, women were absolutely um, suppressed and um, were taught that they were, had no place to use their voice. They were there to raise babies and um, clean the house and cook and be very submissive. I grew up, um, in a very physical, physical abusive home. My dad was um, a very authoritative man. And so, um, which is all, and please hear me in this, I want you to understand that hurt people hurt people. <laughs> and I understand that my dad, that's the way he was raised. And there was a lot of hurt there that he hadn't got to deal with. And so it, um, it got taken out on us. But here's the really cool part where Jesus shows up in my story. Our world was getting really dark, and um, I remember just tremendous amount of fear and hopelessness. And at nine years old, I remember thinking, if my grandparents don't know if they're going to heaven, there is no way I'm going to make it. <laughs> and so at nine years old, I had re already kind of resolved that my eternal destination would be hell, and that God was already so done with me that there was no way I would ever be able to make it to heaven. And my brother was 13 years old at the time, and he had actually ran away from home. And a friend from school, from junior high school, invited him to church. And I remember he came home and him begging my mom. He said, will you please just come to church with us? Please just come one time. Well, if we went, we knew what would happen. There, we would get excommunicated. We would never see our family again. And I remember my mom getting up one morning and she told us that God had given her a dream. And he told her that it was a dream that where all of us kids were in the middle of the highway and a Mack truck was coming. And he said, would you not get your kids out of the way? And she said, of course I would. And he goes, then take them. And so my mom took me and my brother and my baby sister, who was two at the time, to, we went into town. <laughs> and I'll never forget walking into that church in the fear that gripped my heart, thinking, we're going to get in so much trouble. <laughs> we're going to get in so much trouble. And I remember not, I can't tell you a word that was preached that day, but I remember a peace that I felt for the first time 
And I remember a hope that these people had that I'd never seen before. And I remember watching my mom weep until her lap was wet with tears because she heard what Jesus came to do. It was the first time our story had, first time our family had ever heard the redemption story of Jesus, why Jesus died on the cross. We had never heard that story before. And because of one 13-year-old broken boy <laughs> that received Jesus, 75 of my family members found Jesus and left the cult I was raised in. Yeah, it's a good story. <laughs> yeah. And so the hope we found that day was the hope that we would get to live forever, you know, with, with Jesus and that our destination wasn't hell. And I would love to say that our lives became really rosy after that, and it's, it's a process. <laughs> it's a process. And um, so we were excommunicated, obviously kicked out, and my parents were starting a whole new world with seven kids. We were starting a whole new world outside of the life we knew. We were naive. Um, I was raped at age 14 by one of my brother's friends in school. We were trying to learn how to navigate the outside world, didn't know what that looked like. Um, the physical abuse at home got worse because my dad was scared. He didn't know, you know, our whole lives were different. And um, so, it, 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 but there was still, I knew I had found a hope and I had found a love. And even though I didn't know who I was in him, I knew that there was something that he would, that he would take care of me in. Like, and he was always the person I ran to. Even though when I was scared, I would run to him. And I graduated high school um, and went to work for a very successful gentleman in our community. And um, he was considerably older than me. And he was smart and funny and traveled the world and he pursued me and it looked like a really shiny world that I wanted to learn that I wanted to see and we got married and it was rough <laughs> there was um, you know, when you're young, really young, you think, when I have babies, I'm going to grow up. And when he has babies, he'll grow up, and we're going to be these amazing parents and raise these amazing, beautiful kids. And um, so I did. We, we had children very quickly because he was older, and we didn't want to waste, he didn't want to waste any more time. And... Um, and that's when my Abigail comes in the picture. And our marriage was already getting hard. There was some infidelity that had already started. And um, I was hurt and didn't really know where to go. But I remember so vividly the day I held this baby. She was only four days old. And I can tell you what I was wearing. <laughs> I can tell you where I was standing. 
And I remember just rocking her, and you mamas will know what I'm talking about. You love that baby so much, you just want to eat him. <laughs> like, you're like, how could I get her any closer to me? And I was just so in love with this baby, and it was the first time in my life that I had ever felt unconditional love. <laughs> like, man, this is so good. This love is so good. And I heard God speak for the first time almost audibly to me. It was so clear. And he said, Millie, if you love this baby this much, I am the God of love. How much more do you think I love you? And I was like, ah, there's no way I can receive that kind of love. And he just kept loving on me in that moment and loving on my baby in that moment. And on that day, I vowed, <laughs> I will seek this love the rest of my life. I want to know more about this love. I want to know more about this God that loves us that much, that loves me more than I love this baby that I'm holding. And from that moment on, it became a literal seeking, daily seeking of God, show me today how much you love me. Because the more I learn how much you love me, the more I feel the chains break off. The more I feel the hope, the more I feel the peace, because the more I can trust you. So show me today how much you love me so I can trust you more. And as that journey continued, it was, I got blessed with another amazing, beautifully baby girl. <laughs> and she brought so much joy, and it was just, she was just like, um, she was, she lit up my world and just brought so much joy to our world. And I still can, you know, would pray and contend for my marriage and, and our marriage and um, daily just prayed and prayed and prayed that God would save our marriage and that we could stay a family. And um, one night my girls were gone and it was had gotten pretty bad at our house, and so I, we had a horse barn. So I went to the barn, and that was kind of my safe place where I would go and pray. And uh, I was just praying. I was like, God, I'm really tired. I'm really, really tired. Um, and, I'll, and I said, I, I, I don't know what to do. And he spoke so clear me clearly to me that night. He said, well, what do you want? And I thought, I have a choice? <laughs> He's like, what do you want? He goes, my grace is sufficient if you stay, and my grace is sufficient if you go. What do you want? And I said, I want to go. And he said, then go. And I did, and there's a whole story about how I was, you know, I got married really young. I did not finish college. I didn't have a college degree. I got to stay home and be a stay-at-home mom, so I didn't have zero work history, zero career. And so um, I had also signed a prenup, so I knew that if I left, it meant leaving everything again. And it was a choice. And that day I chose hope. And that day I chose a God that I knew would take care of me. And that day I chose his love 
over fear. And he showed up for me in incredible ways, in provision, in peace, in hope. And it was rough, though. I'm not going to lie to that, too. This is the part where I am not a victim in the story. I was a shut-down mama to two girls that was going through a divorce and didn't know how to manage it. There was a lot of hurt that I inflicted at that time because hurt people hurt people. And I remember one summer night, um, it was the three of us, and I fell on my face in my bedroom. And I was like, God, I'm making some choices that I'm not proud of. And I need a friend, somebody that can hold me accountable, somebody that can help me navigate this. And the last thing I was expecting or wanted <laughs> was a really tall cowboy. <laughs> and so, no lie, at a horse sale in Rio Dosa, New Mexico, God introduces me to someone that I absolutely kept at a really long, long arm's length for as long as I could. And he, be, he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And he began to speak life into me. And he began to show me how God wants to go back and heal all those places that had hurt me in the past, that was keeping me from living a good life. And so it's, when I say it's still a process, <laughs> it's still a journey. But what the amazing thing is, is that every time I give Abba access to those places of my heart, he goes in and does super abundantly more than I could ever ask or dream. And it took a lot of processing <laughs> to get me to remarry, not going to lie. I have a lot of friends here to witness that. <laughs> And it was absolutely the beauty from my ashes, the restoration that he has brought me in this marriage, <laughs> the redemption. And we have our challenges, but here's the difference now. When I have a challenge, I run to my Abba's open arms because that's the safest place to be. And I don't have to pretend. I don't have to get myself all together before I run to him. He's like, come here. Come here, baby girl. <laughs> and let me love on you. Come here and let me remind you who I say you are. Come here and let me kiss on your face. <laughs> and tell you how much I love you. Because he knows. The more I know how much he loves me. the more I get set free and the more I trust him and the more of that love in me spills out to all the people that I love. And so my prayer today is that you hear of a God that is relentless in love and relentless in grace and you cannot get away from him. And the further I tried to run every time and I would stop I just had to turn around, and he's standing right there. <laughs>
He's constantly chasing after you. And he loves us so much. And so my prayer is that you know him not only as Jesus as your savior, but God, and not only your God of unconditional love, but that you know him as your Abba, as your perfect daddy, who is desperate for you to run into his arms so he can heal all the broken places and set you free and give you a life above and beyond anything you could ask or imagine. Yeah. That is a brave woman. Thank you, Millie, so much. I just want to end this morning and by reading through a parable with you that is much like her story. If y'all can turn with me to Matthew 20. Uh, we're just going to read through it together. It's a story of hope. It's a picture of the Father God, much like the prodigal son. So, start with chapter 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay, so in Middle Eastern culture, the landowner never goes to the, to the marketplace. He always sends his foreman. But this wealthy man makes the dusty walk to the village himself, seeking people who need hope and help and worth and purpose for the day he's compassionate. And when he'd agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard, and whatever's right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went about the sixth and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, which is just before sundown, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, you too, go into the vineyard. And I picture these leftover workers with their faces cast down. Most laborers leave the marketplace even today by noon in the Middle Eastern culture. But these endured the shame of still being there as the other villagers passed them on their way home with baskets full of food for their families. And they don't admit why they're waiting. They only say because no one's chosen us. I think maybe they're the village idiot, or the ridiculed drunk, or they were late, or they were maybe they were just forgetful. All the master sees is that they're still standing there and they're willing to work now. They've watched the master come by all those other hours and with a small measure of hope, maybe they believe that he'd come back and give them a chance also. And when he does, they go, even though he makes no promise that they're gonna get paid. So they must have trusted him. This landowner, he doesn't walk to the village just once, but five times in the heat of the day, each time compassionately wondering if there's someone else who needs a job. There's no condemnation for those who didn't get chosen first. There's no shame, no blaming, and no handouts. He gives them a job because that's what he knows that they need. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those who were hired about the 11th hour, each one received a denarius. So when those who had been hired first came, 
they thought that they would receive more, and they also each received a denarius. And when they'd received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only an hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. It's really fascinating that the owner pays the workers in the order that he does. He could have started with the first group, paid them their denarius, they would have been thrilled, they would have gone home happy, and then he could have paid the other ones and no one would even have known that the last people got paid more. But this master wants them to know that he's gracious and generous, that's his point actually. Although he pays them fairly, it doesn't seem fair to the workers who went first because this is scandalous grace. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what's yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Isn't it lawful for me to do what I wish with what's my own or is your eye envious because I'm generous? Thus the last shall be first and the first last. This is grace. This is what Jesus came to give us. Just like in Romans 5 and 6, grace can often be misunderstood to be unfair. But this is where hope is born. When something good happens to you that you worked really hard to earn, it's what you deserve. It's not really hope fulfilled. But when it's a surprise or a gift and all you do is receive it, that's grace and freedom. And like the angry worker... When we work harder than others and it's not noticed, we just can't help ourselves. I grumble. I do it too. I love St. Augustine is often known to have prayed, Lord, deliver me from this lust of always having to vindicate myself. I love that. But the Father, he wants to give you more than you deserve. He sees you in the marketplace waiting and hoping for rescue. In this parable of Jesus, the cradle of Bethlehem, Emmanuel, who came to us to show us who God was, it meets the cross of Jerusalem where the Son of God died to offer us grace. So, summary of the parable. He comes to us where we live and he loves us as we are. And I don't know what you're waiting for. Maybe you're waiting for a prodigal to return or a marriage to be restored or the finances to come in. Maybe you don't feel like God cares for you because you've actually made this mess yourself and you can't imagine that God's going to come rescue the slate in the game. But Jesus is telling us a different story. So sit by the road with me along with all the other broken people who believe that hope is coming. Let's unwrap our sandwiches and watch God walk up the dusty road and give us what we need in our circumstances, even if we made the mess ourselves. Because the Father, through Jesus, has come to give us more than we deserve, and he wants everyone else to see it. This is the God that we love. This is the God who came at Christmas. So let's worship this good and gracious God, because he's given, he's come to give all of us hope.